When we were first married, my husband and my preferred mode of transportation for long trips was always flying. But as we've added an increasing number of children to our family, we've become more accustomed to driving for a variety of reasons. It's less expensive for one, but maybe more importantly, it gets rid of the risk of having very badly behaved children on an airplane full of people. So now we drive. Driving is a lot less predictable than flying. When you fly, you usually get to your destination pretty quickly without much variation. But when you're driving, pretty much nothing is set. You can leave whenever you want. You can make as many bathroom stops as you need. And you may think that you know the route that you're taking, only to find that there's a detour ahead that the GPS could not foresee. There is nothing more maddening than watching your arrival time slip further and further to the right while you are supposedly getting closer and closer to your destination. Following God is more like driving to your destination than it is like flying. We don't know all the stops. We know sort of where we're going. We don't know the stops. We don't know the detours. And we certainly do not know how long it is going to take us to get where we're going. But unlike our modern GPSs, which have let us down on so many occasions, when we follow God, we can know with certainty that he sees every stop, every detour, and he knows exactly how long it's going to take us to get where we're going. Thus far in our study, Scripture has been emphasizing God's role in the, leading the journey of the Israelites, that he was involved in every aspect of it, telling them what to do and when to do it. And after all the preparation, this week is the week that the Israelites actually start the journey. This week's passage focuses on how God led the Israelites. And when we look closely at how he led the Israelites on their journey, we're going to see some principles that apply to believers as well, because we too are people on a journey. This week's passage starts with the Israelites as a people group observing the Passover, and it wraps up with them actually leaving Mount Sinai and heading towards the Promised Land. If you remember, back in week two, I pointed out to you that this first section of Numbers is not in chronological order. So before we jump into the passage, let's take a look at the timeline from the setup of the tabernacle until the Israelites actually leave Mount Sinai. Exodus 40, verse 2, told us that God told Moses to set up the tabernacle on the first day of the first month of the second year. Different parts of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers indicate a number of things that had to happen for the tabernacle to be prepared for God's presence and for the priesthood to be prepared to serve God. So, for instance, we saw that the priests had to stay at the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days for their ordination, and that started after the tabernacle was set up. Also, we saw last week 
that the elders that each tribe brought offerings for the altar for 12 days right after the tabernacle was set up. Immediately, all of those activities happened, and we see that the tabernacle and the priesthood would have been prepared and ready just in time for Passover. Following Passover was the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then Numbers chapter 1 told us that God commanded the military census on the first day of the second month. The people stayed at Mount Sinai, while those that could not observe the Passover at its appointed time observed the makeup Passover. And then finally, on the 20th day of the second month, the cloud lifted above the tabernacle, indicating to the people that God was telling them to start their journey. When we look at all these events, the things that God said must happen, and the very direct commands God gave about when to do specific things, we see that God's plan for the Israelites was leading up to them all leaving and starting their journey right after each and every person celebrated Passover. So chapter 9 opens with God telling Moses, chapter 9, verse 2, the Israelites are to observe the Passover at its appointed time. You must observe it at its appointed time on the 14th day of this month at twilight. You are to observe it according to all its statutes and its ordinances. This would have been the first time the Israelites celebrated Passover because just one year prior was the actual event of Passover where they killed the Passover lamb, applied it to the doorposts of their houses, and God spared them death. Right after that, the event of Passover, God gave a number of commands about how to celebrate Passover, and there were many. They needed to select an unblemished one-year-old male lamb, kill it in a very specific way, prepare it into a very specific meal, and eat that meal in a very specific way. Doing that would remind the people of their redemption, that God accepted the Passover lamb on their behalf. Passover is inherently linked to another holiday, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which celebrates the Israelites leaving their uh, slavery in Egypt. It celebrates their salvation. So God commanded the people to celebrate Passover. Picking back up in verse 6. But there were some men who were unclean because of a human corpse, so they could not observe the Passover on that day. These men came before Moses and Aaron the same day and said to him, We are unclean because of a human corpse. Why should we be excluded from presenting the Lord's offering at its appointed time with the other Israelites? Right away, we see that an issue came up. It might not be immediately obvious why, but essentially now that the tabernacle was up and running and the priesthood was, were offering all of the prescribed sacrifices, that was the only place that the sacrifice could be given. We saw last week that anyone defiled by a corpse, they could not even be in the camp, let alone anywhere near the tabernacle. So these men wanted to offer the sacrifice, but they rightly discerned that they were unable to do so based on their state, and they brought their concern to Moses. Picking up in verse 8, Moses replied to them, wait here until I hear what the Lord commands for you. 
look at this. Even Moses didn't assume that he knew what God was going to say. He took their question to God. Verse 9, then the Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites, when any one of you or your descendants is unclean because of a corpse or is on a distant journey, he may still observe the Passover to the Lord. Such people are to observe it in the second month on the 14th day at twilight. They are to eat the animal with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They may not leave any of it until morning or break any of its bones. They must observe the Passover according to all its statutes. There are several things we should notice about God's response. First, God actually had an opinion. He told them exactly what to do. And I think it's worth noting that there are actually a number of ways that God could have responded. This is not the first I would have thought of. If the men hadn't bothered to ask, they might have just missed out because they just assumed they couldn't and just not do it. Or maybe they might have assumed that they should offer the sacrifice as soon as they were able to. That's a reasonable assumption. I'm sure many of us might think that God would see their heart, that it was in the right place, and maybe he, should, he would just overlook the fact that they were richly unclean. The fact is, these men couldn't know what God was going to say if he didn't tell them, and they might never have found out if they hadn't bothered to ask. This is the same for us. We should be like these men. We should be like Moses, where we bring everything to the Lord, assuming that he has an opinion and looking to know what that opinion is. Let's also notice that the men only brought up one thing, the thing that pertained to them. But God actually gave more information because God knew that being unclean was not going to be the only thing that kept people from being able to celebrate Passover in the future. If they were away on a long journey, they wouldn't be able to come to the tabernacle and offer the sacrifice at the right time. So God, in his goodness, gave them information about what to do whenever that situation arose. God emphasized that they were to do the sacrifice exactly as they would have on Passover just one month later. The fact that God did not tell them to do it as soon as they were ceremonially clean or back in town emphasizes the collective nature of Passover. God wanted them to celebrate Passover with other people. These men and anyone in the future who was unable to do Passover at the appointed time would still get to celebrate it with other people, everyone who missed it. In the New Testament, following God is likened to running a race. But that doesn't mean that it's an individual sport. Our culture is highly individualistic, but we need to keep in mind that God calls us to run our race with other people. A friend of ours from D.C. flies into town practically every year to compete in the Texas Ironman. For those of you unfamiliar, an Ironman is a triathlon 
that starts with the athletes swimming a little over two miles, then they bike 112 miles, and they wrap up the whole thing by running a marathon. It takes world-class athletes around eight hours to complete an Ironman. And the thing about an Ironman is that every single person that completes it within 17 hours receives a medal and a, the title of Ironman. There's a surprising amount of camaraderie and encouragement that goes on amongst the athletes. It is not uncommon for people after they have finished their race to stick around, especially as that 17th hour approaches where people are at risk of not finishing in time and saying to them, you can do this. Come on, dig down deep, encouraging them to finish the race set before them. It's really very moving. And I expect, or I assume, that this is God's heart for his people. That each and every one of us would view ourselves as actually in a race. The race that he has set before us. And that we would be intent on finishing that race before us. But also that we would care about all the other people finishing the race that's before them. God wanted the Israelites to celebrate Passover with other people. And God wants us to live our lives, our Christian lives, with other people. Picking up in verse 13. But the man who is ceremonially clean is not on a journey and yet fails to observe the Passover is to be cut off from his people because he did not present the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man will bear the consequences of his sin. So God made a way for the person who could not observe Passover. But he did not for the person who could, but for whatever reason chose not to. It wasn't like the people could pick one of these two days, whichever one was more convenient for them. And I think this teaches us something about God. God is accommodating. And he, when we truly need it, he's reasonable. But us, for our part, when we are able to do exactly what God said, exactly when he said it, that is what we should do, always. If we can't, then do like these men did. Bring it to God and see what he tells us to do. Picking back up in verse 14. If an alien resides with you and wants to observe the Passover to the Lord, he is to do it according to the Passover statute and its ordinances. You are to apply the same statute to both the resident alien and the native of the land. Here God reminds the people of exactly what he told them back in Exodus at the time of the first Passover. Anyone was welcome to join God's people. They just had to enter into covenant with him. And when they did, they were going to be viewed just like a native Israelite in his eyes. And the same statutes were to apply to them. There was no double standard here. Because it's not a matter of nationality. It was a matter of covenant. This, of course, shows us God's heart. It harkens back to God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And it also foreshadows the spread of the gospel to Gentiles in the New Testament. 
before God had the Israelites move forward on their journey, he had them look back and remember. Remember what he had done for them. Remember where they had come from. Remembrance is a theme throughout Scripture. We see it over and over again. And I've become convinced that it's there because God knows that it is actually our propensity to forget. We need the reminder to remember. There is something about remembering where we have come from and all the things that God has done for us that inspires our trust in him as we head out on our journey. If the Israelites were faithful to observe the seven holidays God ordained in Leviticus 23, they would be guaranteed to remember things like their redemption and their salvation at least once a year. And I'm convinced that these seven holidays are not just for the Israelites because each and every one of them points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And each and every one of us teaches us about God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. My faith has been greatly impacted by observing these seven feasts because just as God used them to remind the Israelites of his faithfulness to them and to teach them, he has used them to remind me of his faithfulness and to teach me. Before God had the Israelites move forward, he had them remember his faithfulness because they were going to need that on their journey. Picking up in verse 15. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and it appeared like fire before the tabernacle from evening until morning. It remained that way continuously. The cloud would cover it, appearing like fire at night. Whenever the cloud was lifted up above the tent, the Israelites would set out. At the place where the cloud stopped, there the Israelites camped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at the Lord's command, they camped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they camped. Even when the cloud stayed over the tabernacle many days, the Israelites carried out the Lord's requirement and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud remained over the tabernacle for only a few days. They would camp at the Lord's command and set out at the Lord's command. Sometimes the cloud remained only from evening until morning. When the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it remained a day and a night, they moved out when the cloud lifted. Whether it was two days, a month, or longer, the Israelites camped and did not set out as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. But when it was lifted, they set out. They camped at the Lord's command, and they set out at the Lord's command. They carried out the Lord's requirement according to his command through Moses. This is a rather long section on exactly how God led the people by the cloud. And I read every word of it because I wanted you to see the emphasis. God is the one leading his people. They go when he said, and they stop when he said. Right here, this provides a very practical picture of what following God should look like. I think it's human nature for us to want to see 
ourselves always pushing forward. We want to make quick and visible progress toward our destination. Or at least just steady progress, right? Something about stalling becomes very frustrating to us. But right here, we saw how the trip actually went. Sometimes the people really were moving and moving and moving, and sometimes they were not. Don't we sort of see the same in our own spiritual walk? Don't we sometimes see times of great growth where there's so much going on, and then times where we're like, what's going on? Why have I stalled? Our attention should not be on what we perceive to be progress. Our attention should be squarely focused on being where the Lord has us. If God has us waiting, then, and we're waiting, that's good. If God has us moving, and we're moving, that's also good. But what we do not want to be doing is going when God is saying wait, or staying when God is saying go. If you were to compare the section of scripture that contains the first Passover to this section, the actual event of Passover, to this section of scripture that has the first holiday of Passover, you would see some striking similarities in their structure. In both, God commands the people to observe the Passover, they do it, and then immediately they follow God by following the cloud. For the first Passover, they follow God away from the land of their slavery. For the second Passover, they follow God toward the land of promise. Just like they would need to trust God and follow him out of their slavery, they were going to need to trust God and follow him toward the promised land. God did not free them just to say to them, hey, so like this is where I want you to go. Figure out the path you want to take and ask me for what you need when you think about it. The author of the book of Galatians asked the New Testament church the following in Galatians 3.3. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? This is something we could all struggle with. Feeling like after our salvation, we need to figure out our path on our own. How to become a better Christian. Where to serve. But God goes to great lengths here in Numbers to tell people that God is the one that leads his people. That starts with our salvation and it continues for our whole lives. If we will just draw near to God. Through his word, through prayer. He will bring up the patterns that need to change in us, or the behaviors. He will bring up the disciplines that we need to put into practice, the areas where he wants us, where he's calling us to serve. God leads his people. 
And in chapter 10, we get some insight into some of the ways in which he does this. Chapter 10 opens with God commanding the people to make two silver trumpets. These trumpets would serve at least three practical purposes. First, they would summon all of the people or the leaders to the tent of meeting. Also, they would keep the camp organized as they set out. And finally, in a very real way, they were used to appeal to God. Chapter 10, verse 9. When you enter into battle in your land against an adversary who is attacking you, sound short blasts on the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. You are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and your fellowship sacrifices, and on your joyous occasions, your appointed festivals, and the beginning of each of your months. They will serve as a reminder for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. The trumpets would be used to appeal to God. They were used to appeal to God for help in battle, and they were also used to appeal to God for him to accept the various sacrifices that the people offered to him. These trumpets give us a lot of insight into prayer. Prayer is our main way of appealing to God. Through prayer, we ask for forgiveness, for guidance, for help, for God to intervene in situations. On most days, the trumpets would have been sounded at least twice a day because there were sacrifices every morning and every evening. Isn't this a pretty good pattern for prayer? Every morning, every evening. The trumpets would be sounded multiple times a day on special days and when the people were going into battle. Isn't this also a pretty good uh, pattern for us for prayer? We are not limited in how much we pray. And when we're in a battle or when things where we're particularly thankful to God, we should pray more. The New Testament tells us, Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Verse 10 in the Bible translation we use said that the trumpets would serve as a reminder for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Other Bible translations render this sentence a little differently. The ICB says, they will help you remember your God. The reality is that yes, through prayer, we appeal to God for him to move on our behalf. But prayer also serves the purpose of reminding us of God. When we pray, we are much more likely to see God's activity on our behalf, to see his movement. So if God said, he told the people, to blast the trumpets, and if he tells us to pray, then these trumpets and our prayers serve a purpose. Yes, God is absolutely leading his people, and prayer and the trumpets are part of that. Picking up in verse 11, during the second year, in the second month of the 20th day of the month, the cloud was lifted up above the tabernacle of the testimony. 
The Israelites traveled on from the wilderness of Sinai, moving from one place to the next until the cloud stopped in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time according to the Lord's command through Moses. The people's journey toward the promised land has started. And next we see exactly how they traveled. I'm going to skip around, but the military divisions of the camp of Judah's descendants with their banner set out first. The tabernacle was then taken down, and the Gershonites and the Merorites set out, transporting the tabernacle. The military divisions of the camp of Reuben, with their banner, set out next. Then the Kohathites set out, transporting the holy objects. So the tabernacle was to be set up before they arrived. Next, the military divisions of the camp of Ephraim set out. And finally, the military divisions of the camp of Dan set out, serving as rear guard for the, all the camps. It was emphasized in chapter 9 that God was the one directing the Israelites. They would set out and camp at the Lord's command. But starting in verse 29, we have something interesting. Moses said to Hobab, descendant of Ruel, the Midianite, and Moses' relative by marriage, we're setting out for the place the Lord promised. I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will treat you well. For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. But he replied to him, I don't want to go. Instead, I will go to my own land and my relatives. Please don't leave us, Moses said, since you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you can serve as our eyes. If you come with us, whatever the good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. They set out from the mountain of the Lord on a three-day journey with the ark of the Lord's covenant traveling ahead of them for those three days to seek a resting place for them. Did this have you wondering if there was a mistake? I mean, God was leading the Israelites, but here Moses asks his relative for some help. And they go on a three-day journey to try to find exactly where they should camp. Now, we can't know for sure what exactly is going on here, but we can see that somehow... God was absolutely leading the Israelites, and somehow they could still use some practical help along the way. They were still going to need to camp out and sort of see, discern where God was telling them to camp. God leads his people, and he uses a variety of means to do so. I think this teaches us something about our spiritual walk. Maybe we shouldn't expect the leadership of God to always be fully obvious in each and every moment to us. Maybe sometimes we won't see his leadership until after the fact. On December 28th, 2014, in the midst of a very difficult pregnancy, I went into what I thought was a routine doctor's appointment, only to find out that there was no heartbeat for the baby. And the high-risk OB started telling me that I needed to go downtown immediately for a DNE. I didn't even know what a DNE was. And very immediately, I felt like I'm not doing anything today. So then later, my OB called me and had me come in, and she gave me the options. Go get a DNE or go into the hospital and be induced and have the baby in the hospital. So I sort of naively asked, like, what about not doing anything? 
And she told me that I could wait, not indefinitely, but that I didn't have to do anything right away. And I very much felt like I should not do anything right now. And that sort of morphed over the next day or so into a different thought. Maybe I shouldn't do anything until the new year. It's not like I knew where these thoughts were coming from. And I certainly didn't know if they were from God or not. In fact, I basically spent days begging God to say something clearly or to do something so that I would know what I was supposed to do because I was very nervous about having to make the decision on my own. <clears throat> if I had been allowed or if I had been forced to make a decision on that day, I probably would have chosen the DNE. I mean, who wants to go into a hospital, labor and deliver a baby that is not alive, and then get the hospital bill to go along with that? But with a little bit of space, a little bit of breathing room, I actually decided against the DNE. There really wasn't going to be a fast fix for a stillbirth. But as New Year's approached, I started to panic. This, this arbitrary date in my mind was getting closer and closer, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I actually ended up going into labor on my own on New Year's Day. And only in retrospect was I able to see that God had heard my prayers, that he had been directing me. I didn't know at the time, but I knew afterward. And there were, for a terrible situation, there were so many mercies from God. Physical mercies, financial mercies, all associated with vaguely following a thought that I didn't even know if it was from God or not. So a passage like this gives a person like me a lot of comfort. Some, as somebody that can wonder, like, why don't I always hear loudly and clearly from God? Or is God, or somebody that might question, is God really guiding me? And this passage encourages me to always pray everything. If I am wondering or worrying, I try to stop immediately and pray. Bring every decision before him and just ask him. In fact, a prayer that I say almost daily is that God would speak loudly and clearly to me. But even if he doesn't, that I would walk in the path that he has for me. At the end of this week's section of scripture, we read that as the Israelites journeyed, the ark of the Lord's covenant traveled before them, and the cloud of the Lord was over them, as surely as God led his people then, God leads his people now. And our part is to do what he says as best as we can, appealing to him constantly, like we see with Moses at the end of this week's passage. Arise, Lord, let your enemies be scattered and those who hate you flee from your presence. Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel.